Hey, Crime Salad listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And we're here with a very interesting crime this week. It's haunting, actually. It's actually very scary. I've been having nightmares for days since we got into this case. You wake up all the time. I do. Like gasping for breath. Okay, so... It's it's not funny, actually. (laughs) You laugh or you cry, right? It's not. And most of you know that I do have a baby, and although he sleeps in his crib... Our pug sleeps with us, like right in between us. And there's been a number of times where I grab the pug and just like put her in the air like, oh, my gosh, like kind of like Ripping Simba. her out of the covers. And, and she's still sleeping. Right. I don't know. I think it's the baby. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's under the blanket. But it's just pug. Yeah. He grabbed my thigh the other day and thought it was the baby. <laughs> but don't worry. He's safe and sound in his crib at night. Oh, I thought you were talking about me. I'm not safe and I'm not sound. <laughs> do you do you get a good night's sleep with me? I'm just so used to it at this point. I'm just like, I try to just go back to bed. So, all right. Anyway, you're wasting time. We should get bunk beds. No, I love sleeping with you. Oh, yeah, me too. Anyways, before we waste any more time, we do have three lovely patrons that we would love to shout out. I would love to shout out Anna, Elizabeth, and Haley. You heard it from Ricky. So those are our three patrons this week, and they get ad-free. Freaking listening. Heck yeah. And you can pay as little as a dollar. That's what this Patreon, Patreon, whatever you call it, whatever the heck it's called. Patreon, whatever you call it. It's awesome because you guys don't have to listen to ads. You can hear our lovely voices. Do you think we listen to ads? F no. Heck no, dog. Usually I walk up into the kitchen, I slip Ashley a dollar, and then I don't get ads. (laughs) Get out of town. All right. Before we waste any more time, we have an episode to talk about. The story that we're covering this week is very haunting, and I do apologize if you have any nightmares for days like we both did. This case sucks. It does. For this week's episode, we will be going back in time to 1989 when Ricky was just a year old and I was swimming around in my mom's belly. Is there really that much room to swim? Trust me. Okay. That's what babies do, Ricky. You don't know. This was a time before cell phones, the days where you would use a physical paper map to travel, the ones your parents kept in the glove box that were folded multiple times, which is completely unheard of. Could you imagine, honestly, whipping out one of these maps to go to a destination, like traveling miles to Pennsylvania to Florida? Like, could you imagine? No, I I really couldn't. I think it would be, like, so difficult. Like, what do you use, a magnifying glass? Like, how do you know <laughs> what road to take? Well, if you got to experience this time, it was quite common to receive a postcard in the mail from your friend or your family who was enjoying their trip. You likely wouldn't hear back from them other than that until they arrive back home. It's not like today where pictures are posted for all of your friends and family to see. Before you listen any further, please know that parts of this case are disturbing and may make some listeners uncomfortable. Listener discretion is advised. So this story starts us off in Wilshire, Ohio, 
It was the morning of May 26, 1989, and Ohio dairy farmer Hal Rogers said goodbye to his family as they left on a much-needed family vacation. Wife Joan, known as Joe, along with their 17-year-old daughter Michelle and their 14-year-old daughter Christy, were heading to the Sunshine State, Florida. Unfortunately for Hal, a farmer's job is never done. Someone had to stick around to milk the dairy cows twice a day and tend to the other animals. So he stayed behind, happy in the knowledge that he was giving his wife and girls their very first family vacation. Joe and the girls headed out in their light blue 1986 Oldsmobile without an itinerary other than to have fun along the way. This was probably a very exciting experience for all of them. The first night they stopped in Jacksonville and went to the zoo. And next they went to Silver Springs and took a glass bottom boat tour, which would be very cool. This, however, was outside of Joe's comfort zone because she didn't know how to swim and had a big fear of water rising over her head. The two girls could swim, however, they weren't confident swimmers. Next, they then went to Epcot Center, Disney, and took an MGM Studios tour. The trio planned to end their 1,000-mile journey in the Tampa Bay. The girls wanted to spend their last few days on the beach, getting a tan and splashing in the waves. However, on the way to their hotel, they got lost and had to pull over at a gas station for directions. There, a friendly stranger noticed their Ohio plates and struck up a conversation. He was charming, intelligent, and seemed affluent in his expensive SUV. He told them to be careful in the Tampa Bay area as it wasn't quite as safe as it seemed on postcards. He told them that they stuck out as tourists and he didn't want them to be taken advantage of. He wrote down the directions to their hotel room on an area brochure and offered to take their family out on a sunset cruise later that night around the bay. He told them to be sure to bring their camera so that they could capture the orange and purple hues as they melted into the horizon. Since the glass bottom boat tour had gone so awesome, Joe was feeling brave and wanted to give the girls their next exciting experience on the water. So thanks to the great directions from their friendly stranger that they met at the gas station, the trio arrived at the Days Inn around 12.30 p.m. in the afternoon. They swam in the hotel pool, took pictures inside the hotel room, and then they took a last picture of the stunning view of the bay off their hotel balcony. Next, they went to dinner at the hotel restaurant, where they happily laughed together and chatted away. Afterwards, Joan drove a mile down the road to the boat off-ramp where they were meeting that friendly tour guide for what would be their very first and very last sunset cruise. Now, we don't know exactly what happened on this cruise, but we can gather what happened based on a sexual assault report filed two weeks earlier involving the same friendly stranger and the same boat. Two weeks earlier, two women from Canada were visiting Tampa Bay on Mother's Day weekend. While they stopped at a 7-Eleven convenience store, they encountered a kind, friendly, non-threatening stranger. He told the women his name was Dave Posner, and he was an aluminum siding salesman who lived with his mother. 
He was worried for the two women who were in their early 20s. He told them that they were vulnerable targets for all the young men in the city and it wasn't as safe as it used to be. With fatherly concern, he gave them advice on how to stay safe for the rest of their stay. He also suggested things that they could do around the area. Then, almost as a casual afterthought, he offered to take them out on his boat for a tour of the bay. He gave them directions to a boat off-ramp, and they made plans the very next day. One of the women had an odd feeling about this strange man. Her intuition said that he was creepy and he came off lecherous. She absolutely refused to go on the cruise. However, the other woman didn't want to be rude to the kind stranger, so she went anyway. To her, he seemed kind and harmless. When she arrived, she thought for a minute that Dave seemed disappointed that she was alone. Nonetheless, they spent the entire day on the boat together where he acted as the perfect tour guide. They talked about themselves and Dave was engaging, told her all about the local sites. The woman had a wonderful day. Dave took her back to the dock and told her that she should come back later that evening for a sunset cruise. He explained how colorful the sky got as it sets into the dark blue waves and she should bring along her camera. He also insisted that she bring along her friend. He wouldn't want either of them to miss out on this experience. She went back to the hotel room and told her friend about her lovely time and tried to talk her into going back for that sunset cruise. The friend was still very adamant that Dave gave her the creeps. She didn't care about appearing rude, and she refused to go. So once again, the 24-year-old Canadian tourist showed up at the boat off-ramp with her camera in hand. And this time, when she arrived alone, she could tell that Dave was very angry her friend didn't come along. For a minute, she had a bad feeling, but not wanting to appear rude, she got onto the boat. And it turns out that Dave was right. The sunset was spectacular. She took a ton of photos of the colorful sky, and she even took a photo of Dave. Then Dave let her steer the boat. And while she was steering the boat, he began making advances. They were subtle at first, but then they got more aggressive. He told her that she was really quite attractive and asked her to sit on his lap. When she refused, Dave began touching her all over her body. She stood up and insisted that he take her back to shore immediately. Dave said nothing and began steering the boat again. At first, she assumed he was going to take her back to the ramp, but then she realized he was taking her deeper and deeper out to sea. When he was far enough away from shore, he told her that she had two choices. She could either swim for it or she could have sex with him. Now, she was completely terrified, but again, she refused to have sex with him. She told him that she was a virgin, but this revelation only seemed to excite him more. As she continued to resist, he pulled out duct tape and told her if she does not cooperate, he would bind her hands and feet and throw her overboard when he was done with her. Then he asked her if sex was worth losing her life. With that, his entire demeanor changed. His eyes turned dark and out came a sadistic rapist who got off on causing pain and humiliation. He first forced her to perform a sex act on him, and then he committed brutal acts of depravity against her for hours, all the while saying degrading things to her. When he was finally done, he gave her a bottle of water and demanded she clean herself up. Then he took the boat towards the shore, and before he allowed her to leave, he had a request. He said, 
I know you're going to report this, and before you do, can you just give me a day or two to get my affairs in order? This will really destroy my mother, and I want to make sure she is taken care of. Then, like a gentleman, he helped her into the water and told her to be careful as she worked her way back to shore. In complete shock, the young tourist went back to her hotel room and took a long, hot bath. She said nothing for 24 hours. Then she finally told her friend what had happened, and the two of them went to the police department to report the rape. All she knew was his name was Dave Posner, and he sold aluminum siding, and he lived with his mother in a city that started with a B. She also knew that he had a dark-colored SUV and a blue and white boat with a yellow motor on it that said Volvo. It's from this encounter that we can later surmise what may have happened to the Rogers family. What we do know is that this cruise was different from the one two weeks earlier. There were no witnesses back at the hotel who could identify him if her friend went missing. This time, he had complete control and could end this cleanly without any witnesses, just the way he preferred. Back in Ohio on June 4th, the Rogers family was one day late returning from their family vacation. Hal Rogers was really starting to worry. So was Jeff Feesby. He was 17-year-old Michelle's boyfriend. He had received a postcard from Michelle on the 29th, telling him she would be home in a few days. Hal Rogers also received a postcard from his wife. In it, she told him about the zoo and all the other things she and the girls had done before they were off to Tampa Bay. Both were beginning to really worry. Each day they remained gone, Hal Rogers would check the driveway to see if his family had returned. What Howe couldn't have known was the next day in Tampa Bay, Florida, a sailboat named Amber Waves made a grisly discovery. They saw what looked like a body floating face down under the Skyway Bridge. When they radioed the Coast Guard, they said over the open marine channel, we found a murder. The rescue boat came from the Bayboro Harbor Maritime Base in St. Petersburg. When they arrived, they saw a woman floating face down in the water. She was nude from the waist down, and her hands were tied behind her back. It appeared like she may have gotten one hand loose from her bindings, but unfortunately not in time to save herself. Her feet were also bound together, with what looked like a noose around her neck, which was attached to a heavy construction cinder block. Just as they got the body into the body bag and onto the boat, they got another call about another body. This body was two miles away off the pier. The body was in the exact same conditions as the first body. There was duct tape over the woman's mouth, her hands and feet were both tied behind her back, and she was also tethered to a 30-pound cinder block by the neck. Within minutes of their arrival, they were notified of a third body just a few hundred yards away from the second body. Because the women had no identification and there were no local missing persons reports matching their description, law enforcement had to ask the public for their help. The bodies had bloated and began to decompose. With this as a factor, they estimated their ages to be between 25 to 35 years old. 
They had no idea that one of the victims was a 14-year-old child. The local news was captivated by the story, and they were giving it continuous coverage. Now back at the day's inn where they were staying, the maid went into room 251 for the third day in a row, and noticed there weren't any changes to the room. This was suspicious. She knew the room belonged to a mom and her two teenage daughters, but nothing had moved. The beds weren't slept in, and there were no towels on the floor or signs that the occupants had returned for days. This prompted the manager of the hotel to report the situation to law enforcement. They sent a forensic unit to collect evidence and possible fingerprints. They discovered the women arrived in a light blue 1986 Oldsmobile, and after a search, it was found just one mile away at the Courtney Campbell Parkway boat off-ramp. By the time Hal Rogers had reported his missing family to Highway Patrol, he assumed they had gotten lost on the highway and maybe ended up in a ditch or were in need of rescue. Hal withdrew $7,000 out of his bank and was getting ready to head to Tampa Bay to find his family. Just as he was leaving his home, the Highway Patrol arrived at his door. They informed him that the fingerprints from his family's hotel room matched the three bodies that were found floating in Tampa Bay. Hal was in shock. From the details of the crime, especially the fact that they were vacationing, the police immediately believed the murders were a stranger abduction. However, they still needed to investigate those closest to the family. They learned that Hal Rogers owned a 300-acre dairy farm with his brother John Rogers. Hal and his family lived in a double-wide mobile home on the property. And through some trees a hundred yards away, John Rogers lived in a single-wide mobile home. Police learned that Hal and Joe were high school sweethearts, who had gotten married right out of high school after Joe became pregnant with Michelle. Hal was described as stoic, quiet, and without a personality, while Joe was an extrovert who loved life and people. She was the only one who could get Hal to come alive. They appeared to have a good marriage and went on a weekly date night. The girls each favored a parent. 17-year-old Michelle had the same personality as Hal and the two butted heads often. She also had a deep hatred for her uncle John and tried to avoid him at all costs. 14-year-old Christy was like her mother. She was just finishing the eighth grade and was a cheerleader who loved her dad and loved all animals. She was outgoing and a lively extrovert. Christy and Hal had a special bond. And as you could imagine, it was devastating to hear this disturbing news about his family. So although this tragic murder happened in an entirely different state, police back in Ohio were looking into the very people that were close with the Rogers family. Police looked into Hal first, the father of Christy and Michelle, and the husband of Joan. At the funeral, Hal never seemed to shed a tear. And we all know people handle their emotions differently, but it was alarming to investigators. And if you remember, Hal went to the bank to withdraw $7,000 before he was going to take the trip to Florida to look for his family. They took this as a red flag and thought, well, maybe he was paying a hitman. 
However, Hal went to his truck and handed them $6,000. And then he took another $1,000 out of his wallet. He told police that he needed the money to find his family. He intended to hire a pilot to fly up and down the highway looking for them. His alibi also checked out. And the entire time that the Rogers family was in Florida, Hal ate at the local diner every day for breakfast and dinner. So although suspicious at first, Hal was cleared. The next suspect police narrowed in on was Hal's brother, John Rogers. They discovered that John Rogers was in prison serving a 7 to 25 year prison sentence for rape and kidnapping during the time of these murders. And here's a little detail as to why John is in prison. So John had rented a room out to an 18 year old girl. She moved out after getting an uneasy feeling about him. When she came back to get her things, she noticed a camera and a tripod was set up in the living room. Someone came up behind her and attacked her. Police learned that she had been blindfolded and tied up and was also brutally raped, sodomized, and forced to call her attacker master. The only thing is that the attendant recognized the voice of her attacker. It was someone that she knew. It was John Rogers. When police came to talk to him, they noticed a locked briefcase on his table and asked him to open it. He told them that it was broken and that he had forgotten the law combination. He also told them that it contained old tax records. The police were instantly suspicious and were waiting on a search warrant. And while they were waiting, John asked if he could go outside and finish fixing some fencing since being a farmer meant the work was never ending. And while he was outside, he managed to get his niece, Michelle's attention. John told her to sneak back into the trailer, open the briefcase, and remove everything that was inside of it. She tried to open the briefcase, but got the combination wrong. A few hours later, when police were able to open the briefcase, they found everything that they needed to arrest John. There was a videotape of him raping the tendant just as she reported. In the video, the victim had duct tape over her eyes and her hands were tied behind her back. She was also stripped naked from the waist down, just like the bodies of the Rogers family. Police also learned that John had been in Tampa Bay for six weeks prior to taking a plea deal in his rape case. Initially, Hal Rogers rallied around his brother, as did their entire family. He also agreed to pay the bond to get him out of jail upon his arrest. However, within days, police were able to identify another person in John's videos and photographs. It was a much younger Michelle Rogers, his very own niece. From the age of 14, John had been brutally raping Michelle. He told her if she had told anyone, he would kill her entire family, and she believed him. There were hours of recordings of Michelle screaming and pleading in pain for her uncle to stop hurting her. She also was forced to call him master. Around her family, she did her best to avoid him, but that didn't stop his attacks. At night when Michelle's parents were asleep, 
John would crawl through a window and drag quiet and compliant Michelle outside to his trailer where he would rape her all night long before returning her back to her room before Hal woke up to milk the cows. Michelle eventually admitted that she was the victim in some of the photos and the audio recordings. However, she didn't want to testify against her uncle. She also refused to discuss the matter with her family. Hal and John's mom, which would be Michelle's grandmother, refused to believe any of the allegations. She believed the evidence was doctored, and she was convinced that Michelle was making it up for attention. She told the police that girls that age made up those kinds of things all the time. The odd part is that even after Hal was made aware of the fact that his brother had raped his own daughter, he still spent $10,000 of his own money bailing him out of jail. He said a promise was a promise and he was a man of his word. Police were forced to investigate John Rogers. They questioned if he hired someone to kill them while he was in prison to seek revenge. Eventually, he was cleared of any involvement as he had no visitors and no outgoing phone calls. He also had no way of knowing the Rogers family were on a vacation or where they were heading. Hal had stopped talking to his mother after she accused Michelle of lying. Despite Hal and Michelle's constant arguing, he did go to his daughter, looked her in the eye, and told her that he believed her. He also promised she never had to see her uncle again and he would never step foot on their property. It's horrifying that Michelle went through this as a young girl and this was the same way that she was treated moments before she was carelessly thrown into the ocean alive. It's disgusting. Although Hal and the disturbing uncle were cleared in this case, the monster who did this to the Rogers family was still out there. Law enforcement had no leads and very little evidence to solve this triple homicide case. They created a joint task force with the FBI, the Coast Guard, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, known as FDLE, and the St. Petersburg Police Department. They began by requesting a suspect profile from the FBI. According to the FBI, their suspect was likely a serial killer, which made their suspect the hardest type of person to catch. They said he was likely a white male between 30 to 40 years of age, above average intelligence, neat and meticulous, with strong social skills, and affluent enough to own a boat a person that would be well hidden behind a persona of respectability. Initially, they believed the killer might have worked with the second person, given the fact that it would be difficult to control three victims alone, and that the second person, if there was one, would have been submissive and likely was dominated by the killer. They added to be able to control three victims at once by himself would take a practiced and confident killer who has likely killed before. Speculated that the killer likely enjoyed the suffering of others and fantasized about such an attack for a long time before carrying it out. They said he probably had the murders planned out for a while and was just waiting for the right victims to fall into his lap. And if you think about it, I mean, he had the tools he used for their murder ready on the boat. 
The FBI believed he charmed his victims and arranged to meet them at the boat ramp where their car was later found. They believed the suspect turned on the victims once they were in deep enough water with the use of a weapon. They predicted their killer would use the women's fear of deep water and their unfamiliarity of the area to control them. The profiler said that the killer likely didn't use duct tape on their eyes because he wanted to watch their fear. It was part of the fantasy for him to watch the terror as they watched each other be assaulted and ultimately murdered. The profiler surmised that their suspect would continue to kill until he was arrested. However, he would have probably learned from the Rogers case and become better at concealing the bodies. They also said that the killer owned a boat and probably lived near the boat ramp around Tampa Bay. How scary would this be, living in this area around this time, knowing the horrific way the mother and two daughters were murdered? It would be haunting, thinking that you may be passing this killer on the street and not even know it. After a few months, the task force connected the Madeira Beach rape of the Canadian tourist to the murder of the Rogers girls. They assumed both of the Canadian women were supposed to die during the sunset cruise, just as the Rogers family had. The anger that flashed across the so-called David Posner's face at the continued absence of the second tourist was real. However, he couldn't risk killing only one of them and leaving the other one alive with his description. However, he was still unable to control himself and still attacked the victim that did show up. The FBI sent a sketch artist to meet with the Madeira Beach rape victims and came up with a composite sketch. The task force knew they weren't going to stop this killer without public involvement. So they released the sketch of their suspect in the newspaper and on several billboards around the Tampa area. It included the suspect composite drawing, which stated, quote, who killed the Rogers family on Thursday, June 1st, 1989? $25,000 reward for arrest and conviction. Contact the St. Petersburg Police Department." End quote. One person who saw this photo was Joanne Steffi. She thought the drawing looked a lot like her neighbor. His name wasn't Dave or David Posner, though. His name was Oba Chandler. He lived a few houses down from her with his wife and two-year-old daughter. He was also an aluminum siding contractor. Police had called their investigation Operation Tin Man because their killer told the Canadian tourist that he was an aluminum siding salesman who lived with his mother. Joanne cut out the composite drawing out of the newspaper and placed it on the refrigerator. It took her weeks to work up the courage to finally tell someone about her suspicions. Joanne was taking a night class with a highway patrolman, and she told him about her neighbor. Every day, she expected to see police at his house investigating him. Eventually, Oba Chandler moved away, but Joanne kept the composite drawing of the Rogers family killer on the refrigerator. A few years later, the case had gone cold, and the task force was frustrated, but they were not going to give up. They decided that they would release more evidence to the public in hopes it would lead to the identity of the killer. When forensics went through Joe Rogers' car, they found a map and a brochure. On the map were the handwritten directions that matched Joe Rogers' writing to the boat ramp where they found the car. 
There was also a notation with the words blue with white. The Madeira beach rape victim also described the boat as blue with white trim. The second brochure had unfamiliar writing on it. It was directions to the Days Inn Hotel where the Rogers family were staying. The task force believed this writing belonged to the killer. They were also able to get a partial palm print from the brochure that also didn't belong to Joe Rogers. The task force put up five more billboards. This time, it contained the Rogers family, the reward, the composite sketch, and writing sample from the killer. This time, when Joanne Steffi saw the new billboard, she became angry. She knew the writing belonged to her former neighbor, Oba Chandler. She had found a handwritten contractor estimate from him she had saved in a drawer. She compared it to the writing on the billboard and the sample from the newspaper and thought it was a perfect match. So she faxed over a copy of the writing sample to the task force and waited to hear back from them, but she never did. The task force had received over a thousand tips and Joanne's original tip was either lost or never turned into the right person. Her second report was actually sitting in a task force member's pile of leads, still needing to follow up. Their answer was right there. Joanne Steffi recruited another neighbor of hers into the theory that Oba Chandler was the killer of the Rogers family. That neighbor had a canceled check with Oba Chandler's signature on the back of it. With that second piece of evidence, they were both convinced that they knew the identity of the Rogers family killer. This time, Joanne Steffi's daughter faxed over a cover letter to the task force tip line with the contractor's evidence attached. Finally, Joanne had their attention. When the task force finally went to Joanne Steffi's house to interview her, she didn't want to let them have the original documents. She didn't trust that they wouldn't lose them again. Eventually, they did convince her to turn over the writing sample. The task force was further convinced that they had the right person because Oba Chandler looked exactly like the composite drawing of the Madeira Beach Rapist. They looked up his record and discovered that he had several arrests for sexual assault and petty thefts. The task force flew to Canada and asked the Madeira Beach rape witnesses to look at the photo lineup. And the rape victim immediately picked up the photo of Oba Chandler. She asked to see it in person at a lineup. After the in-person lineup, she was 100% sure he was the man who raped her. Now the task force had enough to arrest Oba Chandler on the rape from two weeks before the Rogers family murder. However, they still didn't have enough evidence to convict for the Rogers murders. Now, this was before the days of touch DNA. Not to mention, the Rogers family was found naked from the waist down, and there wasn't much evidence left to find. The next biggest breakthrough happened when they were able to match the palm print from the brochure found in Joe Rogers' car to Oba Chandler. But they still needed to put him on the water on the night of the murders. With great investigative work, they were able to do better than that. Of the Madeira Beach rape with the Canadian tourist, Oba used a marine channel to make a collect phone call from his boat to his wife. At the time of the trial, he explained that he was out fishing that night. The night of the Rogers family murders, he was also on his boat. 
That night, he made five early morning collect phone calls to his wife through marine channels. Several of those calls were recorded, and he clearly says his name is Oba. That night, he testified his fuel line was leaking and he was waiting to be towed to shore. However, there were never any calls to vessel assist or calls to the Coast Guard requesting a tow. It was very likely he was just cleaning up the evidence all night on the boat and making excuses to his wife why he wasn't home. The task force finally had enough evidence to arrest him for the rape of the Canadian tourist at Madeira Beach and the murders of the Rogers family. According to the book Death Cruise by Don Davis, after his arrest on the long drive back to Tampa, he had the audacity to ask that his handcuffs either be loosened or moved to the front for his comfort. Remembering the tied, bloated hands of the Rogers family, the request was denied. Oba Chandler did testify at trial. During his direct examination, he answered the question easily. He admitted to meeting the Rogers family and giving them directions. That explained the palm print on the brochure and his handwriting. However, he denied ever seeing them again. It was clear he wasn't prepared for a cross-examination. He refused to answer any questions about the Madeira Beach rape victim. He chose to plead the fifth. The Madeira Beach rape victim had testified against him during the state's case, and her testimony was so compelling it left several jurors weeping. Oba Chandler became so combative with the prosecutor that the judge had to admonish him. He apologized and stated the prosecutor was really getting under my skin. During closing arguments, the prosecutor, Doug Crow, painted a horrific picture filled with terror for the Rogers family. He told the jury that they were miles from shore with the twinkling lights from the harbor and the skyline surrounding them on what should have been a magical experience. Yet they were so close, but so far away from any possible help. He reminded the jury that the women didn't have their eyes covered. They were able to witness and feel the fear as they watched their sister, daughter, and mother being viciously raped and brutalized. Then, as they lay on the deck, they must have been in abject terror as they watched Oba Chandler methodically and without compassion prepare the nooses to go around each of their necks. They must have felt hopeless when they realized they were being attached to a heavy concrete cinder block. Joe Rogers couldn't swim and was deathly afraid of water. The Roger girls were only basic swimmers. To add to this tragedy, Michelle Rogers had already encountered such evil in her 17 years of life. To encounter it again on a family vacation seemed exceptionally cruel. 14-year-old Christy was just 5'1 and 95 pounds. She was still such a child to have to endure the depraved fantasies of Oba Chandler. As they lay on the deck, bound with tape over their mouths, unable to even offer comforting words to each other in their final moments, they had to endure the unimaginable. They were forced to bear witness to each other's degradation and suffering. Two of them had to watch one of them be pushed over the side of the boat with the weight around her neck. 
they had to hear the muffled terror and cries from behind the duct tape that would still be on their mouths a few days later when their bloated corpses rose from the seafloor with a story to tell. The last two had to know their fate, grieving for each other and themselves. Then the second one went over. Then there was one left. Finally, the third person went over, struggling for her life and hoping for a quick death. It was a moving closing argument, giving the jury a front row seat to the inconceivable panic and fright. They saw the callous disregard for life by the defendant who saw the Rogers families as disposable players in his sick fantasies. Props, not people, to be discarded like trash. When the jury began deliberations, they started with a simple vote. Within five minutes, they all agreed on guilt. Yet, they wanted to take their job with the seriousness it required. They went through the evidence, the photos of the Rogers family in happier times, the handwriting comparisons, the composite drawing. A few hours later, Oba Chandler was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. When Judge Schaefer sentenced Oba Chandler to death, she told him, quote, Oba Chandler, you have not only forfeited your right to live among us, but under the laws of the state of Florida, you have forfeited your right to live at all. May God have mercy on your soul, end quote. Just before 4.30 this afternoon, the state of Florida executed convicted killer Oba Chandler. Volunteer executioners administered a lethal injection, ending his life for killing a mother and her two daughters. Our Brendan McLaughlin witnessed his death and takes an in-depth look at today's execution. Before he was taken away in a hearse, Oba Chandler had a chance to repent or apologize or plead for mercy, but he didn't. Instead, he left only a handwritten note to be read by the Department of Corrections. His last statement is, you are killing a innocent man today, Oba Chandler. Chandler showed the same defiance at his trial 17 years ago. The horrific details of how Joan Rogers and her daughters Michelle and Christy were lured onto a sailboat, then tied up, assaulted, and one by one thrown into Tampa Bay to drown, never seemed to bother Chandler. Even his attorney found him a hard person to like or understand. Maybe I failed Chandler, you know, maybe I failed him in that regard, but somebody had to try. Do you think he's guilty? I have no clue. For the anti-death penalty protesters on hand, guilt or innocence wasn't the issue. We're against it. We feel it's wrong. Uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. But Oba Chandler committed more than one wrong, destroying the Rogers family and his own. Though she wasn't allowed to witness the execution, a woman claiming to be one of Chandler's eight children came to the prison to find some kind of closure for herself. What he did and who he was does not affect me and who I am today and who I'm going to be tomorrow. But do you believe he did this? Yes, I do. And there's no doubt in the mind of Hal Rogers, the Midwestern farmer whose wife and two daughters never returned from their Tampa vacation. Rogers witnessed the death of Oba Chandler, but let his niece do the talking today. And we are grateful that they were brought back home to us. Now is the time for peace. In 2015, with the advances in DNA science, one more victim spoke out from the grave. A little over a year after murdering the Rogers family, Oba Chandler stalked and killed one more woman. Her name was Ivelisse Berrios Bejeris, and she was returning to her car at a mall when both of her tires were slashed. 
No doubt, a charming and helpful stranger was right there ready to give her a ride somewhere. Ivelisse's body was found three hours later having been raped, strangled, and with ligature marks around her hands and feet. No one but Oba Chandler knows how many other victims there were. He took those secrets to the grave for now. And that's our episode for this week. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.